while I was speaking, verse 20, and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and making my request to Yahweh my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in a swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. This is a unique statement. You are highly esteemed. We have not seen that used of anybody else. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to the sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt in streets of trench, but in the times of trouble, and after sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come and will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and the desolation have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offerings, and on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Okay, that clears everything up. <laughs> like, is this the end of exile? Sevens and seventies and seventies and sixty twos. There you go. This is confusing. Everybody is all over the place on this, and I'm going to do my best. And I, I am planted down on a view, but I will admit that, like, I really think it fits the big picture of everything, but I'm just one scholar of many scholars, and who am I to be like more intelligent and figured out more? Although I will, do, will say most scholars lean towards this view. Let's break it down. First, the word seven comes from a Hebrew word, sabuim. Sabuim, S-A-B-U-I-M. And it means seven, but it can also be translated as a week. And that's not uncommon. Hebrew and Greek words, or Hebrew words, often the, the word seven or one or two can mean something else. Now, in our language, we have Arabic numerals for numbers, one, two, three, just single digits, or we can spell it out. Our digit means one thing, and our word seven means one thing. But in the Hebrew, they don't have numbers to represent things. Everything is spelled. And those words can also mean something else. And they usually correspond to something. The word seven, meaning a week, makes sense because there's seven days in a week. So it can literally mean seven, as in I have seven apples on the table, or it could be translated as I was in bed for a week. And this is the same Hebrew word. Now, the way that this word is used in Leviticus 25, verse 8, it is used of a week in that sense. And there's a sevenfold punishment that is listed in Leviticus 26, 18, and in 21, and 24, and 28. Most scholars, well, pretty much every scholar agrees 
that we should understand this as weeks. So it's a 70 weeks total. Each week represents seven years because that word can mean week or seven. There are seven days in a week, so it's seven years. So 70 times seven is 490 years total. What God is saying to Daniel right off the bat, and here's the main idea, we don't even have to dive into everything. The main idea that God is saying is, exile is not going to be over in 70 years, Daniel. It's going to be over in 490 years. And that's what he's saying here. The return to the land will be over in a metaphorical 70 years. 66 years to be precise. But the return to the land doesn't actually mean the end of exile. Because we're going to see that in Ezra and Nehemiah. In Ezra and Nehemiah, we do not see the prophecies of the prophets being fulfilled. And you and I, obviously, looking back in hindsight, know the last, the years all leading up to Jesus weren't hunky-dory for anybody in any kind of a way. And so right off the bat, God is saying physical exile is coming to an end soon. But spiritual exile, you got 490 years. You got 490 years. However, it could be understood symbolically as well. And most scholars believe that the 490 years is not a literal set your clock and start it, and then 490 years exactly to the year is when the end of spiritual exile is going to happen. For two reasons. One, the word, the number 70 is, meta, is symbolic. It is very clear in this context all throughout Daniel and Jeremiah is being used symbolically. We know that exile was over in 66 years. Nowhere does it talk about the mercy of God ending it. We already talked about that. Therefore, if the exile, physical exile being 70 years is obviously a symbolic number, then the spiritual exile being 490 years is obviously a symbolic number, especially when they're both multiples of seven. Now, the idea is that we know, therefore, it's going to be somewhere around 490 years for spiritual exile and not around 70 years because 70 years was pretty close to being 70. Therefore, 490 should be pretty close. And I'll break those numbers down more because then we have 7, then we have 62, and we have a 7. And so what are those symbolically named? So we have 62, we have a 7, and we have a 49. They're broken down in three parts. That means all those numbers should be interpreted symbolically. So those two things, and the fact that these numbers are used symbolically all throughout the Bible, over and over and over again. So everything I already talked about, that not taking numbers precisely to the letter, probably means that this is supposed to be symbolic. The other reason that most scholars believe that this is symbolic is because no matter when you start, it starts with the rebuilding of the city. And there's lots of dates that you can pick for when this city starts getting rebuilt. And the people who take this number to be literally 490 years, they can't find a good number for starting the building of the city. And no, no matter what number you pick, it does not end in the right way. And that seems to suggest we're taking this way too literally. Way too literally. And it's a vision and prophecy. And visions and prophecies are never literal. And if you question that, then let's go back to chapter 7 with the beast. <laughs> We'll go into Zechariah with the winged women holding Israel in a basket and all this kind of stuff, and it's never really 
meant to be taken literally. Before we start breaking down the 70 weeks, let's talk about the six things that are supposed to happen. Verse 24. 77 decrees for your people in your holy city. So at the end of 77s or 490 years, whether that's symbolic or literal, six things are going to happen. First, finish transgression, put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. The first three are negative, and the last three are positive. The first is the finishing of transgression. The word transgression is a word used of rebellion all throughout the Bible. Not just sin, as in we all sin, and overeating is a sin, and, and ignoring certain needs in people's lives is a sin, and getting angry is a sin. But transgression is intentional rebellion. Intentionally knowing what is right, and intentionally choosing not to do it because I want to. So this is a finishing of rebellion. It is self-assertion. It is autonomy. So God is going to bring an end to autonomy. He's going to bring an end to our selfish desires. That's huge. This is the end of all sin, basically. The end of all sin. And this is one of the things that says these six things are definitely pointing to what you and I would know as the second coming of Jesus Christ because the end of all rebellion is the end of autonomy. And autonomy began in the garden when Adam and Eve took the fruit and said, no, I will write my own law, and my law says the tree is good, even though God said it's not good for you to eat of it. The second is putting an end or finishing or completion. It can mean that it's coming to an end or that everything will be complete to sin. Now that reinforces the idea that rebellion is over with because sin is also over with. The third is atoning for iniquity, which refers to a blood sacrifice for sin. The idea here is rebellion is going to come to an end, and sin is going to come to an end, and it's all going to be atoned for. So the idea is that there's going to be a final sacrifice that's finally going to bring an end to all sin. All sin. Now, obviously, in hindsight, we say that's the cross. That's the cross. The point of all three of these together is that Yahweh will truly take away and forgive sin in a way that is not untrue to his righteousness and justice. Now, this is so important to understand. God cannot just take away righteousness and and sin. Sorry, he just cannot take away sin and just do it, like wave a magic wand and it goes away. That's not just. If God just turned every single evil in the world and said, you're all free, no consequences. Even the corruptness of us and the twisted image of God in us knows that that's not right. And we see that on television all the time when things are go unjust and people riot. And their anger is justified, even though they may not always be handling their anger in the right way. And there's a deep need in this, and that comes from the image of God. So you can't just take sin away. He has to deal with it in a just way. In other words, Yahweh cannot justly let sin go unpunished but completely, by completely forgiving someone of their debt. But nor does the merciful compassion of Yahweh 
bear to execute death on all humans because of their sin. And this is where Romans 3 comes in, because Romans 3 makes it clear. Remember, we've talked about this in other studies. God cannot be just and merciful at the same time. If God is just, then we all have to die for our sins, period. There can be no forgiveness. Because forgive David, think about it. David murdered Uriah. And then he, he took Bathsheba by force. And then God says, you're forgiven. You will not die. The law clearly said the penalty for murder and rape was death. And yet God did not execute the law on him, which that means that's not just. And if you think about the family of Uriah and Bathsheba, did they feel that that was just? No. Yet God was merciful and compassionate, and we all want a compassionate, merciful God. But when he's merciful, he's violating justice. At the same time, when he's truly just on us, he's violating mercy. When he's showing us mercy, he's violating justice. You cannot be both at the same time. Even as a parent, you know that. Okay, you, you war with that, like, I really need to punish them, because if I don't punish them, they'll be a spoiled entire little brat. They need to know there's consequences in life, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But at the same time, you're like, yeah, but this is a lot for them to bear, and they, they really have done a good job, and I, and I really don't want to mess up our family time together. I really want to bring them back in, and, and that could speak volumes to them, and you've got to cut it short. And we struggle with that. And it's only in the cross that both justice and mercy were dealt out universally or simultaneously, because on the cross, God literally killed and punished all sin by Christ being our representative. In that sense, he poured out all the wrath of God on Jesus in a way that we would never be able to handle it. It would damn us for all eternity. Yet at the same time, he shows mercy by now allowing us to be the one on the cross. And in that sense, he's totally just and merciful because now it's up to us. All sins are forgiven through the cross. Everyone's sins are forgiven, whether you accept Christ or not. The only thing that sends you to hell is the rejection of the cross. And that sense, you have justice and mercy coming together on the cross. And that's what God is saying, that this will be dealt with and into sin, but it requires an atonement, a sacrifice. And these first three things are negative, pointing to the cross. The intensity and the finality of these phrases clearly points to the cross as well. The end of sin, the end of rebellion a final atonement. And all of them three coupled together enforces the severity of this that cannot be explained in any other way. It cannot be explained in any other way. This is the answer to Daniel's prayer. Daniel's praying, when is the end of exile? He's thinking physical exile. And in one sense, he can be incredibly disappointed when he realizes, oh, this is actually 490 years later. But in another sense, we now have a more precise date than we have ever had ever in the Bible of when the cross is going to come. They didn't have any picture of the cross until Isaiah came along. And Isaiah was just this future time. And now, yes, 490, it can be symbolic and probably is, but it's still way more precise than anything they've ever had before. So in some ways, it's incredibly disappointing for Daniel to know that it's actually 490 years rather than 70. But in another sense, wow, there's actually the light at the end of the tunnel now. We actually can see it. Rather than being told about the light, 
I can actually see it. There's a date that's been given, so to speak. And so that is an answer to Daniel's prayer, although disappointing that he won't see in his lifetime is more of an answer than he ever even expected. More than he ever expected. The fourth thing that Yahweh will have accomplished is that when sin is done away with, he promises to bring in an everlasting righteousness. This is not the righteousness that sinners can have by being obedient to the law, but an attribute of Yahweh alone. The fact that it says an everlasting righteousness means that this is not a righteousness of faith. The idea that Abraham is declared to be righteous because he has faith, even though he's still a scumbag, passing his wife off as his sister and getting her in trouble and going to Hagar and all that kind of stuff. This is an everlasting righteousness. And the fact that it follows immediately the end of sin and rebellion means that this is positive. Daniel 9.7, Daniel 9.14, Daniel 9.16, Jeremiah 23.6, Zechariah 3.4, and Romans 3.25 all point this being an everlasting, permanent righteousness, an attribute of God. This is only possible with an atoning sacrifice a final atoning sacrifice. The fifth is sealing up the prophetic vision. Now, what does that mean, sealing up the prophetic vision? This refers to the fulfillment and completion and total implementation of all of God's promises. When the prophecies are sealed up, it means that they're finally all fulfilled. They're all complete. Now, that's interesting because what that points to for us is, wait a minute, this isn't just the cross. This is also the second coming of Jesus Christ because we know that, yes, atonement for sins has been accomplished and in some way all sin and rebellion is brought to an end by the fact that sin and the devil no longer reigns in us and has absolute control of us like Romans 6 and then Romans 8 points to. But... We also know, yeah, but worldwide there's still sin and rebellion, and there's still sin and rebellion in my heart when I make wrong choices, and there's not an eternal righteousness here, and there's not a completion of all the prophecies. The sixth is the anointing of a most holy place. This would be a place where people could dwell in the presence of Yahweh without sin. The object is not specified. Usually when the holy city is talked about in the, the narratives, it's always Jerusalem. But what's interesting is when you get to the holy city in Isaiah and Micaiah, and it talks about the idea of the cosmic mountain of God being established, and the holy mountain, there's no object that is specified. That means that it can be either Jerusalem or any location in the world, or it could be the entire world, or it could be Jesus Christ himself. And so in that sense, the holy place of God could be Jesus. And we know that it's actually all of us. Because we're told that the holy place is the tabernacle and the city of Jerusalem. But later Jesus comes along in John chapter 2 and says, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild in three days. And so they did not know he was talking about his body. Then Peter comes in and says that Jesus is the living cornerstone and we're all being built into it, which means if you're in Christ, you're the holy city, thus the vision of Isaiah of all the nations coming to the holy mountain. 
And we're told that the holy kingdom of God is going to come down from heaven and come down on earth, and it's going to fill the whole world, which Ezekiel's vision of chapter 40 through 42 points to a holy city that fills all the earth. And so most likely the holy place is Christ and the believers and finally and ultimately the second coming of Christ coming to earth. These things are more future. So this obviously points to a first and second coming of Christ. And some have hinted at the fact that the first three are the first coming somewhat and the last three are the second coming somewhat. Although you cannot dissect that perfectly according to the vocabulary. Now, we all know in hindsight, there's obviously a first and second coming of Christ when the Jews clearly read the prophecies as one coming. And if you go back and read the prophecies, it really does feel like one coming, one coming. Now, why is there a gap between there? I don't know. Does that make sense? 